0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 13th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I'll remind you that if you've been around here for a while, you might be familiar or maybe you've heard us at different points talk about remembering god's grace remembering god's kindness remembering god's mercy how important it is for you and i to not fall prey to spiritual amnesia so to speak but to be active day in and day out of remembering who god is remembering what god has done remembering what god has promised remembering where we were when he saved us remembering what it was he saved us from we we talk a lot about here talk a lot here about the importance of remembering, but one thing we don't talk a great deal about is God's remembering. We talk a whole lot about the need for us to remember Him, to remember what He has done, who He is, but we don't talk a whole lot about God's act of remembering, yet some 73 times in the entire Bible, we hear specifically of God remembering. I mean, all the way back in Towards the beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 8, when wickedness was what marked humanity, when sin is what marked humanity, God told a man named Noah to build an ark and to put his family on the ark and to put one of each, two, two, two of each animal, one man, one, one male, one female, of all of creation on the, on the ark. And it was then that God began to quite literally pour out his judgment on the wickedness and the sin of humanity. But Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that God remembered Noah. And when he remembered Noah, the waters subsided. You don't have to go much further past Noah to find again in Genesis chapter 30 verse 22, God remembering someone again. In Genesis chapter 30, you find that God remembered Rachel. Rachel was Isaac's wife, one of the three patriarchs of Israel. Rachel was unable to have children. And in her distress, God remembered her, it says in Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. And God opened up her womb, and Rachel gave birth to a son, a son named Joseph. If you just keep reading the story a little bit further, it's in Exodus chapter 2. After Joseph has died, and we're reminded that the pharaohs, no one in Egypt remembers Joseph anymore. Now, we find God's people suffering horribly under Egyptian rule, slaves in Egypt, suffering under their heavy hand, helpless and hopeless. And in Exodus chapter 2, we hear that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, God knew, and God remembered. You see, when the biblical writers say that God is remembering They're not talking about the mental activity that you and I would be would would commonly think when we talk about remembering. When the biblical writers talk about God remembering, what they're saying is that God is about to do something very particular in this time and in this place for His particular work of redemption. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, when you read that God remembers, you can hear in your mind Aslan is on the move. Something is about to happen. God is actually acting in this time, in this place, for his purposes. I want you to keep that in mind, that interpretive key to understanding what the writers are saying when God remembers. I want you to keep it in mind as we continue in 1 Samuel this morning. Last week, you might remember, we started the book of Samuel, and we found that God's people were living in the time of the judges, when again, wickedness and sin marked their hearts and their lives. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And the writer of the book of Samuel zeroed in, in that time, to a particular family in the hill country of Ramah. And most specifically, he zeroed our attention in on a woman in that family named Hannah. Hannah, who like many of Israel's leading women before her, was unable to have children. And we saw last week in this reality, she carried with her the shame of failure and social disappointment and expectation. We saw how she was relentlessly mistreated by her rival, that her pain was minimized at times by her husband, that Hannah, even in her pain, was misunderstood by the priest in Israel at that time. But we saw that Hannah knew something to be true about God. And based on what she knew to be true about God in the midst of her distress, we saw her act on that, resolve her heart based on what she knew to be true. And we saw Hannah pour her heart out, all of her tears, to the Lord of hosts, the one that Hannah believed to be powerful enough and good enough to hear her and respond. We saw Hannah, a first-rate theologian, aware of God's character and his ways, aware and familiar with the stories of God's character and God's ways in the life of Noah, Aware and familiar, most likely, with the story of God's character and his ways in Rachel's life. Aware of God's action and God's ways in the lives of his people, Israel, when he redeemed them and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Hannah poured her heart out to the one whom she knew to be powerful enough and good enough. And as she did, she returned to her family no longer downcast a great reversal had occurred in Hannah's heart. Hannah's heart had become anchored, not in the expectations meeting or failing that the world had for her in that time. Her heart was anchored in the one she knew to be good and powerful in the Lord of hosts. And this morning, we're gonna pick the story up where we left off in verse 19. We're gonna continue this little vignette with Hannah In verse 19, you may remember we ended there last week that the next morning after she had poured her heart out to the Lord, had received from Eli this assurance, this blessing, her heart taking it as a reminder that God had indeed heard her. She went home no longer downcast. There was joy in Hannah's heart because she had met with the Lord of hosts, the ones that she knew and the ones that she trusted and the next morning, verse 19 says, She and Elkinah, they rose in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkinah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So there it is. There's your key. Aslan is on the move in the story, something is happening. In due time, verse 20, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, there's a little wordplay there that's important. The writer's setting you up for something that's to come down the road. In Hebrew, the verb to ask or to ask for, it sounds like Saal. And so Samuel's name is a combination of the name of the Lord El and Saal. Samuel, the one I have asked for, the one that the Lord has given me. But it sounds like another name, Saal. Does it sound like a familiar name? Saul. The writer is setting you up for something that's going to come. Samuel is the one that Hannah asked for in her confidence in the one true God. Saul is going to be the one the people ask for in their own desires. There's going to be a difference between the two we'll come to see. It's important. He's setting up attention for you. The thing we have to deal with in the moment in the story is that God has remembered his people. He has acted on behalf of his people. Is Hannah going to remember him? She gives birth to this child that she's wanted, and a bit of time now passes in the story, and we find ourselves back at another family trip to Shiloh, another trip up to worship at the tabernacle, the same trip that was the same opportunity for Paniah to always relentlessly provoke Hannah. So here we are again now, back in one of those moments, the man Elkina and all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow, but, but Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now is Hannah hedging on her vow? We'll talk in a minute about the complicated nature, humanly speaking, of keeping this vow, but she's not going to go up with him. She's going to wait a little while. Okinah her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now in this part of the world and this day that would have been a good three years most likely. So about three years later, verse twenty four picks up on the story. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her. Along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought into the house of the Lord at Shiloh. So the writer is letting us in on something. Hannah seems to be intent on keeping the vow that she had made to the Lord when she had gone into the tabernacle last time and pleaded with the Lord and poured her heart out in distress to Him. And and she gives us the writer gives us some detail here about this offering they're bringing to the tabernacle. It's larger than the offering that was required of a firstborn child being born. And the fact that this being detailed for us is meant to indicate to us, the listener and the reader, just how deep her gratitude was for God's kindness towards her. But then the writer says something very interesting. The writer says the child was young. This is the writer of the book of Samuel's way of saying what I say around here all the time, read the story like a human. You know the child was young. She had just weaned him. Why make that detail? Literally, it says, the child was a child. The writer puts that in there to say, read it like a human. You're meant to feel something of Hannah's sacrifice. You're meant to feel something of of the honor and of the obedience and of the sacrifice of Hannah in this moment. This isn't a fairy tale make-believe story. This is a real mom three years into loving the son that she had longed for three years into caring for him, nurturing him, protecting him, laughing with him, crying with him. This isn't a baby in swaddling clothes. This is a three-year-old, possibly a four-year-old. And she has spent these years with him, and here she is, back at the temple of Shiloh, keeping the vow that she had made. Verse 25 says, Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and Hannah said, "Oh my Lord, as long as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I have made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The Lord had remembered Hannah, and now we see Hannah remembering her vow to the Lord. And you have to read it like a human. I mean, I can imagine, and I mean this in all sincerity, not like preacher-pastor talk. I can imagine making the vow that Hannah made if I was in the situation that Hannah was in. What I can't imagine is actually keeping it. You have to be human here. I can actually imagine myself spiritualizing my way out of this vow. But would the Lord really want me to give him back to him? I mean, we're going to find out more about Eli and his sons who were ministering in the tabernacle during that time. But she was aware a bit of the nature and the character of Eli and his sons. This is the one who thought she was drunk earlier. Am I really, does God really want me to give my son up to him? To leave him there? He'd be better off with me. Maybe when he's a bit older. Maybe when he's like 12, 13. Maybe then I'll reconsider. That's what God would want, right? I mean, I can imagine myself making the vow. What I can't imagine is actually keeping it. And when you read of Hannah taking her son, taking Samuel to the tabernacle to leave him there with Eli, keeping the promise, the vow that she had made to the Lord, you've got to remember, this is pre-Facetime. This is pre-Skype. This is pre-Marco Polo. She was kissing him on the head. She was hugging him, and she was walking away not seeing him again until they would return yearly to Shiloh to worship as it was appointed. When she leaves him behind with Eli, she's leaving behind all the moments that would have been hers in raising him past this point. She takes him to the tabernacle, and he was young. The child was a child. And you're meant to feel something of what's going on with Hannah. But before you get lost in the emotion and the reality of the story, the writer is very intent on something at this point that you would have picked up if you were to read the entire story all the way through without stopping it with a sermon. If you were just to to read it, You know, when he starts the story, we're in the time of the judges and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and he zeroes in on this one particular family from the hill country. And as the story starts, you think he's gonna zero in a little bit on the husband, on Elkina, but he really doesn't. Elkina begins to fade away and then Paniah comes in, but Paniah begins to fade away and you realize the story seems to be focused on this woman, Hannah. But as you listen to the story and read the story, you begin to realize in the way the story is crafted that in the story of her life, Hannah isn't even the main character. The main character, even to this point, in the story of Hannah's life is the Lord Himself. He's the one that's closed her womb, He's the one that's remembered her, He's the one she cries out to, He's the one that grants her petition. And here we are at the day of her keeping her vow. And I love the way that Courtney Riesig, who's a writer, she talked about this moment. She said that Hannah doesn't shake her fist at God in anger. She doesn't go back on her word. Rather, she worships the one who gives all good things to his children. And she praises him for his character, his goodness, and his faithfulness to his people. She is kissing her little boy goodbye, leaving him. And all that she can do is look to God and praise his name. What Hannah recognized was that her son was not really hers to claim. He was a gift. God gave him to her and he had the right to take him back. She understood the focal point of all of her barrenness, of all of her pain and all of her joy in the birth of her son was not herself. It was God alone. It was not about getting everything she wished for. It was about God being magnified in her life and the life of her son. Hannah's story, the story of Israel in micro picture here in the book of Samuel, is written with the intention of us seeing God as the primary actor in the story of Hannah's life. And that's important because in just a minute as we begin chapter 2, we're going to see that Hannah understood this reality as well. And as we get ready to listen to Hannah's response that day in the tabernacle, I want you to know as you begin to hear it that knowing God as the primary actor in the story of your life makes all the difference in the world how you and I handle life in a fallen world. Give yourself a moment at some point through the week and be honest with yourself. If you were to tell the story of your life to someone, who would be the primary actor in the story? Who will be the one responsible? Who's the central character? Is your story one of you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? Your ingenuity, your self-sufficiency, your skills, your attributes? Who's the central character in the story of your life as you consider it? Friends, this morning we get a gift. We get brought into a moment of intimacy and prayer between one of God's children and himself. And this morning, what we get to hear for us in God's word is Hannah's soul being anchored in the one true God. And as she led us in a prayer of petition last week, she leads us this morning in a prayer of praise. And so this morning, as we get ready, I want to read it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll go back and understand pieces and parts of it. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, let's, let's start in verse 1. There she was giving Samuel over to Eli and, Hannah prayed, and this is her prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, or there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble will bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a scene of honor. For the pillars of the the earth are the lords and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. As we listen in to this prayer of Hannah's again, what we find is that the Lord, now on the other side of him remembering her, is still the anchor of her soul. My heart exalts in the Lord not just emotions. Heart in the Bible, that's the word for the inner man, the inner person. It's affections, it's emotions, it's thoughts, it's intents that gives rise to actions and will. The completeness of Hannah, her heart exalts in the Lord. Her horn is exalted in the Lord. She's not a unicorn. This is a, a metaphor, it's a picture. She's taking the animal world as a picture here. When you see a, an animal mighty on a hillside, having been victorious in battle, its rack, its horns is a sign of its strength. My strength has been lifted in the Lord. My mouth derides, it's open wide because I rejoice in your salvation. There's a completeness of joy in Hannah. It's her joy that she's talking about, but it's God's salvation to her that has brought it. The one that is an anchor to her soul is the one of salvation. As one Old Testament scholar said, the object of Hannah's delight, it's not herself that she's overcome the disgrace of barrenness, nor her son. Instead, the object of her delight is the Lord, who is the source of both her son and her happiness. Completeness. The fullness of Hannah is exalting not in her present circumstance, but in the anchor of her soul, the Lord of hosts. He is the one to Hannah and to all of his people who is indeed the incomparable one. As you listen to Hannah's prayer, you're going to hear her praise different attributes of the incomparable God who is indeed the anchor of her soul. And I want you to listen to them and ask yourself is this same God, is Hannah's God? the incomparable one, the anchor to my soul. There is none, she says, holy like the Lord. In his holiness, there is no one and nothing set apart, untainted, at his level at all. There is none besides you. That's a central theme of the entire prayer. That's the key phrase. There is none, no one and nothing, none, that can compare to you. There is no rock enduring and unchanging, reliable and secure. There is no rock like our God. Not abstract, not an idea, not a philosophy, not a tenet. a relational God of the covenant, our God, he's ours. We're his, he knows us. His goodness, his power acts for our well-being and his glory. There is none comparable to him at all. The fullness and completeness of Hannah's joy, my, 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 is coupled with the incomparable nature of the one true God. None, none, none. And as you listen, and as you hear Hannah's prayer, you're meant to ask yourself, what what competes for your heart's joy and hope? What rivals the one true God for your faith and trust? Hannah's saying, line them up put them all out on the table, side by side, stack them all out. Is there anything or anyone that can compare to him? Is there anything like our God? Who else or what else is powerful enough and good enough and willing to intervene into your barrenness, into your situation, into your hopelessness and helplessness. Who else or what else like our God can intervene like him? He is the incomparable God, the anchor to her soul. And as she goes on in her prayer, it's kind of curious the direction she takes. Verse three begins to offer a warning. Don't believe in your own press. Be careful those who are tempted to believe in their own press. Talk to no more so very proudly let not arrogance come from your mouth talk no more so proud proud that's what it says talk no more so proud proud and proud in, in the hebrew language if we could actually read it and see it you, you'll see it actually comes from the concept of height it's talk no more so tall tall the self-exalted Those who had put themselves up above everyone else, it comes into play later because do you remember what the criteria was for Saul, the people, the king the people asked for? He was better looking and taller than anybody else. There's tension being set up, but talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Those of you caught up in your own self-exaltation full of yourself, intoxicated on your own press clippings, your own accomplishments, your own status, There's a warning. It's dangerous to stand in the light of the incomparable God, intoxicated with your own accomplishment. Why? For the Lord is a God of knowledge, comprehensive. That's plural. He's a God of all knowings, nothing escapes his understanding. He's not an abstract idea this is the god of the covenant this is the personal god who has all knowledge you can't deceive him you can't hide from him as one writer says human arrogance is the denial is the denial of god's absolute uniqueness it is the expression of the heart being truly deluded in our pride our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency is nothing but a demonstration of our own deception. Misunderstanding the nature of the incomparable one. By whom, Hannah says, all actions are weighed, balanced out in light of his character and his knowledge. Oh, the justice of God that anchored Hannah's heart, believing that he assesses perfectly based on his perfect knowledge. I mean, weighed in the balance of his perfect knowledge, of his holiness, of his sovereignty, of his steadfastness, weighed in the balance of his character, how foolish is it to be loud in your own arrogance and pride? How foolishness will it sound in light of the one incomparable and true God? It'll sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Friends, our continual self-reliance and self-righteousness and self-exaltation, it's not only misplaced in view of the incomparable God, it's a dangerous thing to do. Because the incomparable God, as Hannah goes on to pray, he's the one that literally flips the script of life and circumstance as he sees fit for his glory and the good of his people. Unforeseen reversals come at the hands of the incomparable one alone. The bows of the mighty are broken. Everything that seemed invincible at the time, the power that seemed overwhelming at the time, he overwhelms what seems invincible in the eyes of man. But the feeble, those who if they tried to enter into the battle would only stumble and fall, they bind on strength in his hands. They are strengthened to engage successfully. See, human power is seen in an entirely different light in a view of the incomparable God. A life lived in view of the one true and holy God casts an entirely different shadow on our ideas of human power. Power is always a, a preoccupation for the proud, but so is prosperity. Those who were full, Hannah says, have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. That's written in such a way that that forlorning, that, that weakening, that, that grieve that comes from being forlorn is the consequence of what it was you had. So it's the very children that maybe she had Paniah in her mind when she was praying. I don't know. I won't say that she did because that might be wrong, but what the writer is actually saying in recording this prayer is that the very children that this particular person derived their strength and their security from, their tall, tall, their proud, proud, their self-exaltation from become the means by which they waste away and are forlorn. Friends, as you slow down and you listen, you're reminded that even prosperity is a great deceiver. Present prosperity can get us to think that we really have no need And we're reminded as we're let into this prayer out of Hannah's heart that your security can't be measured by your prosperity. And prosperity doesn't just mean money. It's whatever it is that your heart holds tight to to make proud, proud, or tall, tall. Whatever it is your heart clings to, whatever it is that you would line up on the table to stand next to the incomparable God as a source of joy, as a source of hope, as the object of your trust, Your security can't be measured by your prosperity. Friends, our security is meant to be anchored only in the incomparable one. And as you listen to Hannah and consider the incomparable God anchoring her heart, you get the opportunity to ask yourself, where has my present prosperity lulled me into a sense of self-sufficiency, a sense of self-reliance, Listening in on your own prayers is a great place to figure that out. The Lord, Hannah says, makes poor and makes rich. The formerly rich have been made poor. The formerly poor have been made rich. And it's the same Lord that brings low. And it's the same Lord that exalts power, prosperity, position, None of it is fixed or unchangeable in the hands of the incomparable God. Just consider all the energy we waste, all the time we waste trying to make our way to the top of whatever social ladder we find in our world. And all of our ladders look a little bit different. But just be honest with all the energy and the emotion spent trying to climb them. In the hands and the purpose of the incomparable God, no one's position is fixed or unchangeable. It's him, the Lord, who kills and brings to life. He's the one who brings down to Sheol and raises up. This is the ultimate of reversals. This is the sovereignty of the incomparable God, the self-existence of the incomparable God. Whenever you read of God giving life or taking life, it's only he that can do it because life dwells in him. It's his to give and his to take. He is self-existent in himself. Hannah goes on, look at verse 8 he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He does what he wills. Verse 8, those aren't reversals. Those are just demonstrations of his incomparable grace in his holiness and in his steadfastness and in his knowledge and justice and sovereignty. Those are just pictures of his kindness and grace towards the lowly. So you get a chance as you listen in on Hannah's prayer to to ask yourself something in view of the incomparable one. Like we talked about in Romans 12, with, with a view, a panorama, a big picture of the incomparable One. You get a chance to ask yourself, how in my heart do I view things like human power? How am I viewing my prosperity as a means of security? You get to ask yourself honest questions like, do I mind being unimportant in this world? In a day and age of Instagram and Facebook, am I afraid of being weak or poor in other people's eyes? Friends, one pastor said, do you think that you have the power to hold on to life and avoid death? Most people seem to live as, they think, as though they think they do. But there's an answer that comes, he said, from actually believing in the God of all knowledge. And so as you listen to Hannah's prayer, you must ask yourself, where is the Lord, the incomparable God, in our real thinking about life? This prayer, it, if you read it this way, takes on the preferred drinks of the proud, power and prosperity and position. And as she goes on, she she issues in some sense another warning so to speak. It's not wise in light of the incomparable God. It's not wise for you or I to set ourselves against him. As Hannah continues to pray, she is she's praying with a forward view There's a prophetic angle to the prayer that Hannah prays here. In verse nine, she says, he, the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful ones where the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. You're gonna see that over and over again in the book of Samuel. But the adversaries of the Lord, those who would rely upon their own strength, those who would rely upon their own righteousness, the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The incomparable one is going to judge the ends of the earth. And to those who trust in his promises and receive his gifts and rely upon him in humility, he will guard. But but to those who will rely upon themselves, to those who will try to live in their own strength, You will find yourself broken. But here's the thing. Standing between you and the realities of God's judgment is God's king. It's a curious way that Hannah ends her prayer because there's no king in Israel during this time. There's no king ruling the land. We're still in the time of judges here. Standing between you and God's judgment over all the earth and the wickedness being dealt its final blow, standing between you and that judgment is indeed God's king, his anointed, the Messiah. As the story unfolds, Hannah's son will actually anoint the king in Israel. Hannah's son, Samuel, will pave the way for David. One born from Bethlehem who will again point ahead to another son. Born not to a barren woman, but even more to a virgin who takes Hannah's prayer as a model for her own. You see, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's story is part of a much bigger story of God's provision. Not just for her and not just for Israel, but the story of God's providing a Savior for us all. It's not by our might that our salvation will come. It's not by our strength and our might that our hope will be lasted. It's not by our own ingenuity and self-righteousness that we have any security. It's not by might, but it's by the power and grace of God alone. God's king, the one whom God will exalt, the horn of who, the strength and the victory that God will lift up will indeed be Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only true incomparable one. And you and I get to listen in on Hannah's prayer on this side of the cross. And we know that Jesus is the King who comes and who is the one who ultimately flips all of the world's scripts upside down as he sees fit. You get to go back and read Hannah's prayer, her portrait of the incomparable God. You get to go back and read it in light of his son. You get to go back and see him as the one true, incomparable, saving God, taking those who were dead in sin and giving new life. He's the one who does that. You get to go back and read about the one who is solid and unchanging, immutable forever. You get to go back and read Hannah's prayer through the lens of the holiness of Jesus. The one who, though acquainted with all of our grief, never sinned, set apart. No one like him the one in whom had all power. Simply a word and the waves stop. Simply a word and the demons are silent. You get to go back and read Hannah's prayer with a view towards Christ, the one in whom had all knowledge, knowing the thoughts and the intentions of man's hearts. You get to go back and read Hannah's prayer with the lens of God's justice finally being met in light of our sin and the crucifixion of his own son in our place. You get to go back and read Hannah's prayer and see this man, Jesus, the king whose horn God exalts when he raises him from the dead, the one who takes those who are weighed down in guilt and shame and lifts them up out of the ash heap to sit with him on the throne. You get to go back and listen to this prayer through the lens of the one that the self-righteous, the self-reliant, will have to stand face to face with one day. The one promised who will bring a humbling to those who seek to exalt themselves. Friends, I'll tell you this morning, as you listen to Hannah's prayer, you quite literally have to reject or ignore Jesus to find yourself the recipient Of God's final judgment. You have to ignore him. You have to reject him. You have to find a way to bypass him to find yourself in the position of the one God will thunder down judgment upon in the end. So let me say this. My prayer this morning is that today may be the day for some of you that you hear God say, enough is enough. Enough is enough with all the foolishness and all the self-sufficiency and all the self-reliance. Enough is enough trying to be the primary actor and character in your own story. Enough is enough. Please don't walk out of this room this morning saying, I've got it. I'll do it my way. Because the worst thing that you could ever hear having walked out of this room saying, I've got it, is God saying, fine, I'll let you do it your way. It is a dangerous thing for you and I in our pride to try to stack ourselves up against the incomparable one. It was Jesus who said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, Hannah's prayer reminds us that Aslan is already on the move. God has acted and God is continuing to act for his glory and the good of his people. It was on the cross that Jesus was brought lower than you and I could ever imagine. But it was God who raised him up, seated him on the throne of honor. And you and I's, we follow this king. As our hearts find find their joy anchored in the reality of who he continues to be for us, as our heart exalts in the one true incomparable God that we see in the man Jesus Christ, and we follow him as king and king of Lord of lords, there may be moments in our life on this earth where for our joy we will suffer humiliation. We may suffer at the hands of those who may exalt themselves against him, but Hannah's prayer reminds us even then he's worth it. He's worth whatever price we may pay in human prosperity or power or position. However confused our neighbors may be with the way we live our lives and the standard of living compared to everyone else because of the choices we make to follow him, he's worth it. When you take your precious free time, and you use it to serve those around you in need, when you serve refugees in the city, when you come and serve in the learning center, when you go and serve others, when you carry a a burden upon yourself to help others that they might see Jesus in those moments and people can't understand it, he's worth it. When you get on a plane and you go to Central Asia or you go somewhere else in the world that those who have never heard the name of Jesus might hear it and come to know him, the one true incomparable God, And it makes no sense to people around you sometimes. Hannah's prayer reminds us that he's worth it. And we're reminded that because Jesus is the incomparable king, whatever in light of, of human prosperity and power and position may be lost to follow him, whatever might be lost in human eyes for his sake, it'll be paid back eternally in his presence forever. He's worth it. Friends, this morning, as we prepare to respond to God's word, as we prepare to take a couple of moments to reflect on Hannah's prayer and, and offer prayers of our own to the one true and comparable God, as you get ready to do that, I just want to leave you with something. I, I read a pastor named Ryan Kelly. He's in Arizona. He was speaking about something else, but it very much fit what we've seen in Hannah's prayer this morning. He said, What can you and I expect of God? What can we expect of this incomparable one that has anchored Hannah's heart? He said, if you're a Christian, you can expect that God will always do better for you than you know to ask. You can expect that he will keep glorifying his name to the ends of the earth, even when it looks the bleakest. You can expect that he'll uphold his promises no matter how small they seem to move along. You can expect that none of his plans will be thwarted. You can expect that he will uphold us and pervert, per- preserve us, and that in the end we get him. You can expect that he'll hear you, that he sees you, that he knows and that he cares. You can expect dark days, but you can expect that he's working in innumerable ways that you can't even see, just as he was then. You can expect that he will continue to work in the seemingly ordinary and weak he said this is our god friends this is the one incomparable one that is the anchor of hannah's soul he does as he pleases for his glory and our joy may he be the anchor of your soul i'm going to pray and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on god's word and to offer up your own prayers to him this morning and then for those who have believed upon jesus as king as savior we are going to remember his sacrifice in our place for our sin as we take communion together sing and we'll be sent out from here so let me pray father we thank you this morning that you have revealed to us the the contours and the edges and the particulars of your character that you have not left us to think that you're just an abstract concept or idea to be compared to others, but you are the one true, incomparable, personal, sovereign one who is the only source of security and anchoring for our hearts in this day and for eternity. And this morning, we just ask that you would do whatever necessary in every heart here this morning to rescue us from the deception of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, the proud, proud, the tall, tall that deceives us into fi- to not finding joy in you alone. We ask this morning that you would help us as Demetrius played to see Jesus, to see him clearly as the fullness of the Godhead, that we might see him in his majesty and enjoy him in his grace. We ask that you would do that this morning in his name. Amen